Hello? Sarid. Hello? Yo. Yo, how you doing, man? Mosk is good, man. Good to hear you. Yeah, good to hear you, too. I'm, uh... <laughs> I, yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. From another dimension, another dimension. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> At least, uh... Couple, couple deck. Well, no, I don't know when the last time. I think I saw you and you came up briefly uh, while you were still in New York. And I saw you at a gig. Whatever it is, it's been at least ten years. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so I think that was 12, 13 years. Yeah, ago. That's fucking yeah. wild, man. I'm in the yeah. uh, I'm in the CKT production studio. Um, there's no uh, there's no pressure on us right now, so. Um, I'm gonna ask you a couple different questions. I want I was thinking I'd split it up into kind of two parts because one, I wanted to ask you about your memories of CKT because we're still doing the 30th anniversary uh, project, even though the 30th was like two years ago. Um, Louise and I are still, you know, trying to collect memories and memorabilia and whatnot. And then I'm gonna ask you about what's going on now about your artistic life. You're, you're just, I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> life is strange. Yeah, right. Life is strange, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, not, not exactly how I thought, you know, it would be, but no. that's a part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like, it's almost like whatever happened to me. Uh, in, in Montreal at CKET kind of became this formula embedded in my DNA and it's all I can fucking do anymore right. DIY <laughs> music shit yeah. let's go yeah absolutely so, I mean I mean same uh, here um, and you know I, I, sometimes I try and get out and um, I think <laughs> this is too insane I gotta stop it but you know all it takes is a week and then I'm back back in it something draws you back in um yeah i wish i wish you could see the city because it's completely not as you remember it but if you walk through, it's insane but if you walked into the, the into ckut nothing has changed <laughs> it's like this that's amazing it's this kind of like uh the, the land that time forgot you know because the city of Montreal has completely been... I mean, it would blow your mind to see it. I mean, th some things are the same, but... Fuck, man, it's crazy how much it's changed. I'm living yeah. out in Hochelaga, Maisonneuve. I remember you lived out there with Adu. Yeah. Yeah. Is it all condos now? No, but it's coming. It's starting. That process <laughs> is starting. St. Uh, Henry, where you also lived, and I lived for 15 years, yeah. is all condos now. That's mad. And uh, yeah, I try to keep up. I try to keep up online, but it's uh, it's just mad. Yeah, so it's changed. But it's lovely that like uh, I always thought CKT will always be its own uh, time capsule. You know, like yeah, yeah. There's no time capsule. Like it's still in the same building. Yep. There, I mean, so there's nothing like it's everything's the same. The music offices, all the offices are the same. Louise is still there. You know, the staff is different. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. like the people running the shows, you know, a lot of the cats, um, you know, are still, uh, the same. It's, it's, that's crazy too, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Do it's you, amazing for the longevity of, uh, of the spirit of, uh, what CKT has always been about. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you, like, just if you can... You know, any kind of memories that you have from your time as a volunteer or, or on staff, um, anything that sticks out is like really uh, valuable memories or memories that, that stay with, stayed with you or that, you know, kept you going later on in life or whatever it is. Yeah, man, I got a few. <laughs> uh, I mean, always, honestly, over time, the, like... The, the, the most intense memory that I always equate with CKUT, like the first thing that pops up whenever I remember, you know, my times there, was really like my first, uh, my first, like at that time, 
all all new volunteers had to go through this kind of training where it involves like a bit of training in each individual department so you got some training in uh you know in the uh in the in, in the on air booth then in the production studio then in the music library and then like one and one so on so my first day volunteer training the first first person i'm i'm put up with is prime time <laughs> and uh <laughs> prime time i mean is a legend already and i mean i'm strolling up to you know uh to to meet him for the first time and everyone's already telling like epic legendary myths of you know his accomplishments of you know well he is and i i had no idea what it was in for basically I was, it was like an hour of just being blown away by this man uh in, in the booth and just like i had no idea what i was in for you know and um i still remember like uh we get into the uh, on-air booth and he's like, all right, well, you know, you just sit back and watch. You know, it's your first day. I was like, cool, I'm cool with that. I don't know what any of this stuff is, what any of this stuff does. All I know is I'm in for some good reggae music. And back then, like, I mean, CKT was my whole introduction to, like, a whole universe of uh, music that, you know, I wasn't so well acquainted with. And, like, I was looking forward to it. And in front of my eyes, Primetime transformed into this, like, octopus who was simultaneously... You know, loading up the the cartridge decks and pulling up a 45, flipping another 45, pulling the mic close to him, getting on the mic, and it was live. It was just lit with you know just him in the studio. And uh, but then just like two three minutes into uh, the show is when the real magic happened. The door just the door just flung open, and there was like a constant stream of like visitors, his friends, and. He's just shouting them out one after the other. Hey, so and so's in, and so and so. And I guess that was where I really understood. Like, okay, wow, this is what community radio is. You know, the whole community was up in there in the studio at three in the afternoon on a. I think he had his shows on Thursday. On what the Tuesday, the Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah, Thursday three positive vibes. Man. And it's still yeah, positive it, vibes. It's still on the air, and it's still uh, it still gets mad busy in the studio when that show happens. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, wow, I didn't know what I was in for, you know, I mean, like, uh, for all intents and purposes, I was coming from the equivalent of a small town, you know, from abroad, you know, and uh, I had no idea what I was in for. And uh, yeah, that's the moment that I always cherished. It was just like, all right, we're in for a ride now, you know? Yeah. And then I remember, I had another memory, like, right after that, I can't remember, I think... I think it must have been that I was talking with John B, but my memory is hazy. It was, you know, with one of the staffers. Just, he was just generally introducing me to, uh, you know, the station and the programming at the station. And, you know, I was just looking at it. I was like, hey, what's, what's that show? Oh, that's the, that's the Korean community show. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> hey, what's this one? It's, uh, that's the experimental goth techno <laughs> show that like this guy's been doing for 20 years oh you don't say uh it was just like wowzers yeah uh you know what, what a ride um coming from a place where you meet you make a new fan and they're like so what are your five favorite bands meaning assuming that like there there's just five to choose from right. as opposed to five gazillion <laughs> Um, you and uh, you and uh, your homies were pretty uh, pivotal in introducing me to uh, a sh shit ton of, the, of, of, of music, like um, to Darren Peacock, Graham Thomas, Bartek, yeah. the whole uh, Ottawa squad. They literally just made me sit down and and yeah. say like, "You haven't heard this? I can't believe you've never heard this." And then they played this. And then he went on to, what, you've never heard that? I can't believe you've never heard that. Put on that, you know, that, you know? And, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, the whole... Maybe you could tell the people just uh, a bit about uh, about yourself. And, I mean, I realize that there's, like, we provided no context um, uh, from where you were coming from, uh, what the situation was. Well, why don't you talk a bit about... Uh, you know, when you showed up at CQT, who you were, where you came from, what was going on? Yeah. Well, um, I'm from India, and I grew up in different parts of Asia. 
and I arrived in Montreal in the fall of 1998 to attend uh, McGill University. And pretty much the, like right during Frost Week, um, I landed up at uh, CKUT. So that was 1998. Like I mean, uh, I was I was looking forward to, uh, to getting in there. You know, right right when I landed, it was a priority, and yeah, it exceeded my expectations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I, so, I mean, so that was that. I want to. Uh, stress that it wasn't just I mean you um, you became so involved in the city you landed you almost immediately uh, organizing events playing in a number of different musical formations uh, you know obviously at CKUT um, still on the wall we have the uh, in the music office we have two posters for the Explosions Underground Music Festival uh, people still talk about those gigs. I mean, um, that festival was incredible. And when I look at the lineup and how amazingly curated uh, that that festival was, I mean, some of those people went on to amazing things uh, on top of what they were already doing, amazing things. Um, and I saw a great photo recently of Mr. Microwave playing at that festival. Those were yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it's Mr. Microwave with a microwave on his head and a very young uh, group of people, all of which, you know, uh, went on to do amazing things in the city. But that festival um, was also one of the first kind of official things that happened at Casa del Popolo as well. Yeah, yeah it's kind of yeah, it was. Maybe you could talk about just, uh, you know, what it was like for you. I mean, I know it's so long ago, but just being involved in the city. Yeah, I will. Man, I mean, when uh, when I landed up in Montreal, as I'm sure for a lot of youngsters showing up for their first uh, stab at university, it was like letting the genie out the bottle, you know? It was like, wow, there's this whole city here, there's all these people here who are doing interesting things, and you can be a part of it, you can be a part of this huge scene. It's, just, it's not just you and your high school friends anymore. Uh, maybe, you know. So, uh, yeah, I dove right in and um, everyone was so helpful and, and supportive, you know, like uh, like you and, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you helped me with a bunch of those, but you put me in touch with Mr. Microwave, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, um, you know, I guess there was also this uh, kind of youthful naivete about me at that time where I was just, you know, like, Let's do this. Let's do, I want to do stuff. I want to do crazy stuff. I want to do wild stuff. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but back then, definitely at most of the, most of the punk rock clubs, you could just like walk in and ask to speak with the owner and just set up, you know, there was like nothing too big about just booking a show and I thought that was incredible, you know? Yeah. I mean, I remember, um, I remember uh, it wasn't just bars either um sorry to interrupt but i remember you doing them in your apartment too uh down on uh, saint antoine street yeah why not you know uh i mean <laughs> <laughs> if you can get away with it i can't do that anymore where i, where I live but like um yeah you know there was like i said a certain youthful naivete about it and well actually i mean uh you know uh back was uh, back when i was in high school where i grew up uh as a teenager in the UAE, uh, there weren't really like clubs or anywhere for uh, us to play, like for bands and musicians to play. So, you know, I used to have uh, you know shows at my place back then too. You know, mm -hmm. um, up on the roof. You know, um, this apartment building. So, so that was maybe just a continuation. But uh, you know, um, I don't know. The music I don't know, has I don't to know happen what it's somewhere. Like any, anymore. Was that the music has to happen somewhere? You'll, you know, people yeah. fi people find a way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The music finds a way, and I mean, I don't know exactly what it's like anymore in in, in the West. I haven't been back in like ten years, but in general, from what I see online, and I mean, in other cities and other parts of the world, like everything's become like you know. I, I feel like there's, the, you know, I'm almost forty now, so I get to go. Say these things like, oh, kids these days, oh, yeah, these yeah. kids these days. But it feels like, uh, you know, kids are trying to get uh, 
managers and uh, tunes signed before even just doing a little house party and having 15, 20 friends over and just raging, you know? Yeah. But uh, for me, that's what it was all about. 15, 20 becomes 80 or 100, and then the next thing you know, you, <laughs> yeah. like like some of our friends from that scene, just... Um, Next thing you know, you're on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's the city has the city of Montreal uh, still manages to support that kind of DIY scene, but it's increasingly difficult um, to find space. To find, uh, I mean, a big problem, uh, especially in the neighborhoods that you probably remember nightlife in Montreal being in. Uh, the plateau, Mile End. Uh, the big problem is just noise complaints. You know, n- uh, venues can't. Uh, the, the, they're at war with the neighbors. Na- you know, venues are at war with the neighbors. And um, yeah, and more and more, uh, it's just being pushed out to uh, you know places like Hochelaga, where you can still get away with uh, some industrial space or way up in Park Extension. You know, but uh, the core of the city is is becoming you know devoid of any kind of that spirit uh, that we remember but it still exists it still exists which is the important thing you just got to travel a little bit further um i wanted to talk about some of the groups you were involved with because uh they're all amazing i mean there was detroit metal um we'll start with that i mean you uh, were instrumental in that group i mean i know um it was yourself, Darren. I mean, it was expanding and contracting. That was almost like a collective. Um, Mel- yeah. Melanie, whose last name I can't remember. Um, Will Glass was in that band. Ed Orloff was in that band. I mean, these are all great musicians. Maybe you talk just a bit about Detroit Metal. Yeah, yeah I think that was the first thing. First, like, band outfit I started. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, it was a collective, and I was king of the collective. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yeah, that was fun, uh, you know, and uh, Montreal was my introduction also to uh, improvised music and all different kinds of experimentation, and, uh, you know, I dove right in, and um, I guess uh, I Detroit Metal, I tried to put together, and Dove, Dove Winkleman, we almost right. forgot, uh, uh, I almost tried to piece together, uh, you know, the the weirdest people I could find from uh, the shows that I was going to and um, you know and who were just up for for jamming and uh, seeing what could happen and uh, playing shows with Detroit Metal led me to uh, meeting Chloe Lum Chloe saw me first playing with Detroit Metal and she came to me and well first she asked me first she asked me to go for uh, for dinner and I was like, cool. I was you know, quite flattered. And uh, we went to this Indian place, <laughs> which is cool, because uh, I'm Indian. But uh, it was lovely. And then she asked me, she's like, yeah, I'm starting this band. Do you want to be in it? I was like, well, of course. And then uh, she took me right away to meet uh, Yannick, Deron Lo. And uh, yeah, then that was that. And that was the beginning of the Bloody Gashes. Yeah, the legendary Bloody Gashes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that crew. Yeah, that that uh, that record is still, um, you know, it's still a, a, a high watermark for a lot of crazy things. Uh, there's um, a um, a record that maybe didn't get made or didn't get released that was recorded. Yeah, um, there was uh, with Tim Glasgow, who went on to be uh, in-house tech for Sonic Youth. I remember you guys went and recorded with him in London, Ontario. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I was telling Louise, I remember the you guys were on the cover of the Montreal Mirror, and it came out I think two days after nine eleven. Yeah, I think and, that was and you were maybe a covered in blood, infamous, infamous thing. <laughs> covered in fake blood. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, and I remember it was sort of a controversial thing. I mean, I don't think they had a choice. They, they probably sent the thing to the printer, uh, you know, before they knew that. Yeah. Before anyone yeah. knew that yeah. what was going on. But 
We had some explaining to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, blame Ru- Rupert Buttenberg. Blame Rupert Buttenberg. He's the editor. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, man, those were those were next big thing days. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, but I guess uh, the group of people we were, we like everything had to be the next big thing. So you're always trying to be on the next thing. Yeah. So yeah, that I still have all that music. I still have that uh, that unreleased uh, EP, and uh, every now every now and then over here in India where, where I'm living now, uh, every now and then I, I pull it out because I have a whole new you know like uh, group of like friends and acquaintances and work colleagues here who have no idea of my murky notorious past in uh, Montreal and every now and then I pull out pictures of the bloody guys to show them and uh, play them the music and uh, yeah it's like uh, you know it's like a, a missive from another dimension <laughs> yeah. well it was wild because that band was you know it was always a crazy band but it was for all intents and purposes it was a, a, a garage rock band or a punk rock band but towards yeah. the end, it got really crazy. It got really, I don't know, you know, how much of it was improvised and how much it was planned, but it became completely abstract and almost like a noise band. Yeah. Well, we like Sonic Youth and Royal Trucks and, and all that stuff. So that's kind of what we wanted to do and have a have a hype, hype stage show, you know? Yeah. So... Definitely had as them. wild as they want to be. Yeah. Um, the next project I remember you doing uh, with Dane Mills was Alm Supreme. Yeah. Yeah. First time I Dane. saw uh, someone roll up in a casa with a desktop computer and make music with yeah. it. <laughs> Dane went on. Yeah. To, Dane was the first drummer in the Arcade Fire, who of course we all know. And uh, maybe talk a bit about Alm Supreme. I have that CD somewhere. Yeah. Yo, so I, uh, so Dane uh, came over to visit me recently because he nice. was living in Taiwan and I'm out here in India. And I think that was two, three years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a riot uh, catching up. Dane was the original drummer for Arcade Fire. And um, I think, uh, you know, we were like at that time, right? Like, uh, you know, the early 2000s, uh, a lot of us rockers were, you know, so, so it feels like we were at that, at least for us. It felt like a lot of rockers were getting exposed to, to electronic music, dance music, disco music, and, uh, you know, with laptops becoming more and more common, uh, you know, you're thinking of like, hey, I can make music on this thing. How do I make music? on this laptop and uh you know uh so that's kind of what what drew dane and me together was just we you know we used to use these obscure programs these trackers and it was really painstaking to make anything with it mm. but uh we uh, did and uh we we didn't midi sync our, our our systems together either it was all manual it was like it was like a resurrection of Devo, right? With, with, with sense like we were the robots. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, man. Uh, and um, I guess we we brought our like a punk rock, rock attitude to, to, to making it and, and doing the shows. And there were already like a lot of, uh, quite a few like house and techno purists who came across what we did and would just straight up tell us like you're doing it wrong you have no idea what you're doing do you you're doing it wrong and <laughs> we didn't care we were just having too much fun yeah it was that weird mi- middle time when uh punk rockers set up laptops in the middle of dance floors you know yeah with a table in the middle of the, of the dance floor got girl talk dan deacon you know yeah so we, we I, wanted to be part of that. I remember seeing you after um, you had just come out of a concert at one of the festivals here, and it was—I remember it was Farmer's Almanac, which I'd never heard of before. But your eyes were kind of pointing in two different directions, and you were just like, "Moscus, my <laughs> brain just got fried. I've never seen anything like this before in my life." You know? 
I don't know. If, I don't know if yeah, you remember man. that concert, but I, I I remember your being just seeing you being so. You'd just been at this thing that obviously had really affected you. That honestly sounds like about every weekend that I went out to like some you know kind of show. I mean, you probably didn't notice, but that's that's exactly the look I had right after uh, the first time I saw Kubelka when yeah. you guys got together again for a reunion. The first time I saw Ficus, good God, oh man, uh, you know. Uh, I remember I remember all kinds of weird uh, shows I went to. I still have those uh, posters with me. They're actually still right here on my desk. I keep meaning to put them up. Yeah. Posters of uh, shows at Hotel Tango and uh, all these places. Yeah. So, um, Casa Rosa. When you... Uh, back to Om Supreme for a moment, just, you know, learning uh, obscure music software... Uh, did you have any idea? Were, were, were you immediately attracted to it? Did you have any idea that maybe uh, that kind of electronic music might be something that you would go into? Because I mean, it seems like that's that's the style you're rocking now, you know. I'll tell yeah. Well, I'll tell you what it was, man. Like, I mean, quite honestly. Uh, so in in both bands, both those main like bands that I've been in. Um, you know, like Buddy Gashes after all this work and time together, fine, we just grew apart as people and the band broke up. Uh, but, you know, it also been, spent a lot of time, you know, we, we went through like five drummers, you know. Yeah. Um, and after all that kind of stuff, I was at this point where I was like, I think even, even Dane was at, at this point where I just wanted to be independent. Like, here is this system, like here's a system now that like forget about lugging like guitars and effects pad pedals and helping to load up the the, the drum kit you know later while maybe you know the drummer's away getting drunk I don't know but it was just like you can take control of of it all right you know I don't need to know how to play the drums I can plug it all in you know to the sequencer and boom it's there and it sounds hard you know so. Um, I think it was that like that independence that like really drew drew me to making music on uh, on laptops and yeah I mean still to, to I mean to this day right now like ninety percent of it is in the box you know and any any usually when I try to go out of the box and record something live you know now like or acoustic like it just never ends up in a place that I need it to be so but. Um, yeah, and like it's, uh, I never, you know, I mean, I never intended to be a music producer, right? Like all this time in Montreal, all that stuff was still for fun and like pocket change, you know? Uh, but like now it's evolved to the point that, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, even though it's not like a direct relation, but like, yeah, that's like, what I do now, man. I'm a DJ slash producer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> um, yeah, it I mean... It comes with those... Uh, I, I gotta, those, I gotta, like, I gotta say, I'm not... There's a kit for it. You know, there's a whole kit for it. Yeah. I'm not... Uh, it's no surprise, though, you know? To me, anyway. What's that? I mean, finding out that uh, this is what you do now is not a surprise for me, and I'm sure anyone else that knew you back in the day. It's a surprise for me. It's a surprise for me, because so I left Montreal. As uh, you know, I uh, came back to India for a year. I was working at a consulting company, and then I went back to and then I went to New York for my master's degree. I did an MBA, and then I was working in New York for a couple of years. Uh, well, like three years. At, uh, as a music publicist at this company called World's Fair and I grew so sick of what the music industry was becoming at that time at that time 2005 to 2008 uh, was when uh, independent music was just exploding online you had pitch, like Pitchfork was becoming more important than MTV YouTube was exploding and uh, there were blogs and there were websites and uh and along with with this, you know, increase in media, there was an explosion of bands and musical artists and performers all vying to get attention. And it felt amazing being in the center of it in New York, but in a way, I kind of like burned out, and I just 
had enough of it and my whole plan i mean also at a personal level at that time like my mom passed away and she was really special to me and uh so i was kind of stuck in new york like just not really feeling <laughs> any of this anymore you know yeah. like uh i thought let me move back to the motherland where india where there is no independent music scene there's just bollywood yeah. and traditional folk music you know uh, i thought i would move back here and work with some ngos and try to do some good and maybe maybe try to pursue writing like write an epic sci-fi the epic indian sci-fi novel of his generation you can but, still you know, do like, that by the way i but, just <laughs> What's that? You can still do that, by the way. There's, it's never too late to write an epic sci-fi novel. Just saying. Well, well, it's never too late to start yeah. <laughs> writing that thing. Yeah, you know, but I don't know. But uh, yeah, anyways, like we were saying, like uh, you know, the universe has a funny way of self-correcting, and uh, you know, uh, turned out that right when I was moving back here in 2008, moving back to New Delhi, city of my birth. In 2008 is, in 2009 is just when the independent scene in India just started kicking off, yeah. you know, and those embers have uh, kind of become infernos now, like, whew. It's like, like I'm saying, like I was saying at the beginning of, uh, of our chat, you, you can't, if you're, uh, you can't escape it. You try to get out, you, and you end up right back in the middle of it. Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, totally. Um, so I wanted to talk about just about Surreal and about, um, you know, your career over there as a DJ and producer. Um, maybe just uh, where did that where did that start? Or where did, I mean, you moved back to New Delhi. Uh, there was the beginnings of, a, of an independent music scene there. When did you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, Pull out the uh, pull out the gear and start making making records again, or start DJing again, or what? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, when I moved back here um, for a long time, there just wasn't really this kind of DIY ethic that a lot of us are accustomed to from from the West, you know. And uh, around that time, is I think uh, you know there there was the the credit crunch, right? Like worldwide. Yeah. And uh, what that meant was that a lot of people lost their jobs, so they lost their work visas, and they had to move back to India. A lot of people who were pursuing masters and PhD degrees, uh, maybe their grants got canceled and they had to move back. So, at least in Delhi at that time, it was like um, the atmosphere was ripe for a cultural renaissance. These people who've been exposed to a world outside of India suddenly moved back and were in the same place. And that just added, you know, fuel to the creatives who are already here, who were just accustomed to remaining hidden because they're, you know, they're, like there was no like outgoing nightlife uh, culture here. There were no gig venues. There were like, you know, whatever art galleries there were. I mean, it was it was like a cultural void when we talk about like art that is not sponsored by the government or, or some uh, corporation. Right. And um, yes, it just so happened there are people with uh, nothing to do or time on their hands are starting anew, and so uh, people started putting on you know shows with the, whatever music they were into. There was a reggae crew, there was a German bass crew, a dubstep was big at that time, so there's a dubstep crew, and I think similar things started happening in the other big like you know cities in India, Mumbai, yeah. and Bangalore. And, um, yeah, like for me, you know, it was at first just like, oh, okay, like I'll, you know, DJ a set for fun. And, but then, like, a friend of mine had started as like a cafe slash pub slash venue. And uh, the small place only really fit like, you know, 200, 300 people maximally squeezed them in. But he kind of started it just for fun. And, uh, I mean, just for fun, that's weird thing to say but like he, he didn't have any grand intentions you know it was sure. just something to so like it was a job you know uh he thought he would be just serving uh sandwiches and coffee you know but uh very quickly uh bands and djs started lining up just asking for if they could do shows there uh because there was nowhere else in town where they could 
do that, you know? Like I was saying about how special it is in a city like Montreal, you can just walk up to, you know, some of these places and ask for shows. So he started doing these these shows and uh, very lo-fi level and eventually reached, I mean, there were every every night was packed with, with people because there was not much else to do and uh, it was a novelty. And pretty soon he ended up making silly mistakes like double booking bands and, uh, right. you know, not getting the right equipment. And that's when I stepped in and said, you know, hey, uh, you, we're friends. This is like, this, this is like what I do. It's in my DNA. Why don't you let me take care of this? And uh, that was the beginning of a, of a quite beautiful four-year you know, relationship of, of running this place. And uh, yeah, man, that neighborhood where we started this thing, uh, TLR, the neighborhood is called the Hoskos Village. We were the first like club there. And uh, if you go now, you know, within three years, it was completely gentrified. We went from from one club to five clubs to 15 to like now there's like 100, 120 different establishments. You know, it's like a little, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like a little party ghetto. So, yeah, that was a, that was a wild ride. But pretty much somewhere along along that road, I don't know, I think I've been yapping for a while, but somewhere along that road, eventually TLR had to shut for licensing issues. And uh, but by then, like I'd been DJing all the Saturday nights and I had a bit of a following, so uh, I got myself some management and uh, <laughs> you know never looked back. The rest is history. Um, the rest is history. I was um, reading your the piece you wrote for Red Bull on Desi Bass, and uh, yeah, I, I which was great, and I just wanted to ask about that sound and that movement and um, where you fit into all of that. Um, so yeah, like um, at the time that uh, you know, like I guess about five, seven, eight years ago, when trap, trap music, like the EDM side of trap and uh, Mumbaton and uh, all these kinds of uh, nano genres or you know, new genres started taking over the the dance and pop music landscape. Um, I guess in India, most of the electronic mu- musicians, like there's always been a culture of, of fusion, of East-West fusion. Yeah. Um, you saw it uh, with the Asian underground stuff in the 90s out of the the, the UK, yeah. you know, Asian Dub Foundation and whatnot. Sure, yeah. Um, and even... Yeah, and even before that, if you you know think of some of uh, some of the Bollywood greats, like there's uh, uh, composer producers like R D R D Berman, uh, you know who uh, he he was the first guy to use uh, use a Moog um, in, in in Bollywood, you know, yeah. and uh, that was in the seventies, and yeah, there was al- there's always been this tradition of <clears throat> fusing Western stuff that helps <clears throat> make it more palatable yeah. here to like uh, a wider audience, you know. So I guess uh, some producers, including myself, started doing that for the new, new sound of dance music. You know that that the Diplos and the Skrillexes and all are pushing, and uh, you know global bass being a thing. We, I, I think it was. I, I like to think it was me. I slapped the Daisy on it. And that's the Daisy bass. Yeah. Uh, that's that, that's what we're calling. That's calling it. That's my story. We're sticking to it. <laughs> so. Yeah, so uh, now that sound is like uh, you know it's uh, it's taken over. Uh, one of the biggest uh, DJs here in India right now his name is Nuclear, and uh, I was here at a time like you know I, I got to see that growth of yes, him playing his sound, this new Daisy bass sound to ten people, a hundred people. A thousand, and now it's like ten thousand at a time. Like you can't get it, get a ticket. You're scalping tickets for his stadium shows, you know. Damn. It seems like you play in front of some really big audiences. Do you find yeah. that? Do you find that it's difficult to push boundaries or to be rebellious when you got to face down a crowd of? I mean, I know you're older now, so it's like those kind of things are not so important, but. When you're facing down a crowd of however many hundreds or, you know, thousand people or however many people you play in front of, it's more than, you know, 15, 20 friends or even just, uh, you know, 40 people. 
at the Casa. Yeah. Yeah, I've been blessed. I've had uh, a lot of opportunity to, to go and figure things out in that arena. And uh, I think it really depends. You you know, like, like with any kind of DJ, you have to understand your crowd and the environment and the context of what's going on. Yeah. So there are some festivals that I'm booked at with thousands of people where I know that, okay, this is a very commercial crowd. It's more... You know, normals, but everybody's just here to have fun. Right. So I would play, you know, a more simple, direct set for them. Yeah. Um, but then there are festivals that I get, get booked at with large crowds where, okay, I know these guys are down. Like they know what's hype. Uh, they want to hear the new stuff. Yeah. You know, so I think it's you know, and and to me that's still part of the attraction of this whole uh, this whole scheme of uh, of, of DJing and, and, and producing for the Daisy dance floors like to call them uh, it's of, you know of, of of understanding your audience and you know trying to keep them happy and at the same time introduce them to, to new stuff and you know just kind of carry them for, forward a bit um, it's a little different uh, difficult to, to, to describe because so much of it here, um, it's like um, there's social change happening at a mass level, you know? Right. Like when I go play to at a college festival, when I go play at a college festival, you know, uh, like maybe 10%, 20% of those kids grew up in urban areas and are relatively hip. But still, that 80% mass are coming from small towns, rural areas, villages that might be in school or on scholarship, you know, mm -hmm. this might literally be, their, for some of them, their first encounter with this kind of big show Western uh, culture, you know, right. and um, and for all the, uh, and for everything that it stands for, you know, and, you know, I think of it as a, we have a bit of a responsibility to, like, to do it right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, yeah. I wanted to ask about the new record. It's called Visa on Arrival. Is that, uh, that's out on all the platforms, I imagine. Um, yeah. Why don't you just talk about the new record? And uh, I'm also just curious about your process, where you make your music, where you uh, get your inspiration from. Uh, what, what was making uh, Visa on Arrival like? Yeah, so... My uh, two albums before this were that were Trappistan, yep. Trappistan and Twerkistan were both done along those lines of uh, Daisy Bass, East-West Fusion, and trying to contextualize these new sounds for an Indian audience. Um, and for the last two, three years, what I've seen really growing over here and what started, you know, inspiring me more, I've been, I've been the dance hall and reggaeton scenes. Reggaeton especially, like, people don't understand, but, like, the new, la the current language of Bollywood and Hindi pop music is reggaeton. Right. Like, everything is on a dembow rhythm. And uh, to me, that's, like, fascinating, you know? And uh, similarly, like, dance hall, uh, the, the vocals, you know, are, 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 are in the dance hall style. And... Um, so, plus I have a, a lot of friends here that like, in the general scheme of underground dance music, uh, you know, who kick things off here in, uh, in, in Delhi, crews like Reggae Rajas, Bass Foundation, uh, they were all continue, you know, they, they were all about uh, introducing uh, reggae and dub based music to Indian listeners, you know? Right. And I mean, uh, sure, we have Apache Indian, uh, who's still active and a legend, a living legend, but, um, you know, there's a whole universe beyond that. And uh, we've seen, uh, like, modern modern dance music is, like, di directly derived from, you know, dub culture, right? Like, yeah. uh, Prince Prince Jammy and, and, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, so this album... Sure. So, but yeah, so reggaeton and that's all really blooming. And also, what's really inspired me here, so, re I mean, reggaeton and that's all I'm talking about because, you know, they, they formed the basis for uh, the new album, Visa on Arrival, they're the main, like, genre influences. And uh, the, what's 
another another thing that like really inspired me in the last couple of years is we've seen a, a huge growth in the scene of dance hall dancers mm-hmm. in India. Mm-hmm. You know, dancing the, the 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 Jamaican dancers, and they've been flying in the Jamaican dancers like the OGs and and the stars and you know legit people to give classes and I've seen wow. the classes go from being like a few dozen people to like hundreds you know like um, and uh, you know there's always been uh, uh, an amazing like uh, youth dance culture in India uh, that's largely been around Bollywood dancing on the one side and hip hop dancing you know if you turn on the TV here yeah, there's many many like dance shows which is teams of kids like dancing you know and uh, uh every city has has dance crews kids they compete you know uh like that scene is very rife but i've always felt a lot of it especially you know on the hip hop side of things western music side of things hip hop break dancing b-boying completely dominated by the lads you know of course yeah. by the boys but when it came when it comes to dance hall it's all the girls you know and there there are these um you know the moves are quite uh sexual uh sure. some in uh, conservative indian society might say vulgar and inappropriate for a woman you know yeah. and so to me i i think it's a very important like social movement that's happening you know that in the light of all the other societal problems we have here it's you know let these girls get some you know so uh that's really yeah. that's really been inspiring to me cool um, I wanted to, uh, yeah, I wanted to just circle back and ask about where, about when you make a record. Uh, I mean, clearly these days all you need is a computer to make a record. You don't need. Um, do you sit down in uh, in the study in your apartment and and do you do it in the morning? Do you do it in the afternoon? When do you when, <laughs> do, you, when do you create? I'm curious. Um, well, all the tracks on my album, like, I mean, uh, I'm really slow at uh, finishing uh, tracks. Uh, Me too. You know, whenever I, get a, whenever I get a chance to work on it, I do. I guess um, most of the tracks uh, on the album, most of the stuff I make in general, I mean, most of the stuff on the album took like a couple of years, right? Because what happened was uh, just over two years back, I started working on some of the tracks on the album, uh, but then I got selected to be a contestant on this TV show right. for, on Amazon Prime. Make some noise, guys, and welcome to the remix! I wanted to uh, ask you about that, that, too, so it's a good... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that show's called The Remix, and it's this uh, pretty intense uh, competition. So I guess the whole... The whole, the whole so it's this competition where there are teams. Each team has one music producer and one singer, and each episode, we have to remix a Bollywood track in a modern style. Yeah. And there's judges, and, uh, you know, there's eliminations, and, uh, you know... Uh, each episode, the 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 tasks get tougher and tougher. Like some episodes, eventually you're remixing, you know, two tracks for each episode, and then different kinds of themes. And um, yeah, basically, I ended up winning that uh, contest. But uh, it took like uh, you know three four months of shooting, and then when it finally uh, aired or went online on Amazon Prime Video. That was a while. So I put off like working on the album yeah. and then I got back to it. And, um, but, and then when I got back to it though, I'd learned a lot of things from my experience on the show because that show, uh, whereas I've generally been outside of the Bollywood system, this being such a corporate branded project was very much inside the Bollywood system. And, uh, you know, we had really tight deadlines. So what they do is, uh, each, team like Bollywood production the way they need it it's pretty like uh, full on you know like yeah, uh, every, every everything has 10 layers on top of it mm-hmm. you know and uh, that's just the way they insist on, on doing things yeah so it was a lot of work for like one person to do and like basically had like 24 to 36 hours to do uh, the, the, the remix so you get assistant producers 
Now, those assistant producers they gave us are the guys who work in, I mean, they're basically these Bollywood music factories. Like, these days, the, the main, like, Bollywood music producers, they're like brands, like Pritam, uh, you know, Abhijit Vagani, they're, they're brands. But they have a whole, like, factory of kids, you know, actually doing the work. You know, right. one guy sitting in in studio recording the singer. Another guy's like making the the top line, and then another guy is changing the beat to like you know it was like factory. Yeah. So getting to work with these guys and seeing like okay, wow, this is can you I guys can do it? So each track on my album, when I went back to work on it, I really enjoyed this process of just remixing the remix of the remix of the remix until you end up with uh, maybe not the tightest possible piece of dance music you could have that's gonna have you know I hope an impact when I play it yeah. on the floor yeah that's I, that's uh, that's incredible um, I don't know I don't know how he did it but Darren Peacock uh, managed to find all the episodes and follow you along <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dress up in costumes and do the dances. Oh uh, man! I mean, I saw clips it on was, Instagram. Uh, it, it, uh, it was super impressive. Just amazing. Uh, it looks so fun. Although it sounds but, uh, intense yeah, as like all bloody hell. Felt like a clown, but I was a clown that was getting paid. Yeah, well, so right. paid well. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Those are kind of the end of my questions, to be honest. My experience with CKT, like. Uh, you know, like maybe still like who I am out of root you know like the, the the root like the most inside part of me like like the most true layer came out of CKAT you know wow. like I like to think that the good parts you know the, the stand up guy parts the 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 good Samaritan parts 